begin our reading at verse 1, Matthew 24. The first book in the New Testament. Listen carefully, this is the word of our God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we cross the threshold into chapter 24, we're moving into a new major section of the book of Matthew. The previous section was uh, in many ways defined by conflict with his opponents. Well, now we're moving into what is called the fifth discourse, like the fifth major discussion of the book of Matthew, a, a, a major communication is a discourse or a, uh, an authoritative discussion or sort of presentation on a topic. You would say that's a discourse. And this is the fifth such major discourse in the book of Matthew. Some call it the Olivet Discourse, since the location of this teaching was on the Mount of Olives across from Jerusalem, looking over at the temple, uh, as they said in those opening words. So this section of Matthew is defined by teachings that look forward to the time between Jesus' first and second coming, you know, his great return, uh, and what we would call the last days, and his judgment associated with that great return. So Jesus is now with his disciples, and no longer are these public open statements the way that he was contending with his enemies and everyone was listening back and forth in the temple. Now he's sitting down with his disciples, and uh, there's no scrutiny by his opponents. It's now a discussion with them and their questions. In this passage, Jesus described the tumultuous birth pains, which are the signal that the end of the age is near. And we want to talk about a world in tumult and the disciples facing you know, even deadly persecution and the proclamation of the gospel going everywhere. So these are the tumultuous birth pains that signal the end of the age is near. And in the opening verses of the chapter, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This from Jesus is, you know, a revelation. It's prophetic 
revelation, but really going beyond prophetic to divine. Uh, it's a clear confirmation of his deity, um, that he, he knows that the time is coming in soon, the temple will be destroyed. And in the, uh, in the eyes of the disciples and in the eyes of the Jews, this is an earth-shattering event. This is a, a sign of great uh, distress and catastrophe. Um, we know that these words came true uh, less than four decades later, 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by the Romans and the entire city really was flattened by the Romans. Uh, and certainly the temple and all of its buildings that they were pointing to across the valley. And we can't escape as we read this that the woeful destruction of the temple is connected to the warnings of judgment and unbelief by the temple leaders and by the religious leaders of the day, uh, a judgment on them for the unbelief that we just finished uh, a major section on, this, this uh, pronouncement of woe and the conflict that Jesus had with, with their leaders and really with Jerusalem as a whole and its unfaithfulness. Uh, we can't escape that this is connected, that that judgment uh, close up, that is in 70 AD, many, you know, many, many, many now uh, centuries ago, that that wasn't an immediate judgment. But in this chapter, we should understand that this is also foreshadowing. It's looking forward to something much greater, to a swifter judgment that is coming with the arrival of Jesus in his great return and in his judgment of the whole world the way that the Bible describes it and how Jesus is going to go on to describe in these chapters. So in light of this powerful event, um, that there would barely be one stone of the temple and its buildings and its, in all of its greatness left one on top of the other, which is a picture of total destruction, the disciples are asking, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the close of the age? That kind of catastrophe in their eyes says the end of the world is near. And so, you know, now hearing that the temple is going to be destroyed, they're probing, you know, is the end, you know, soon and how soon? And when will you come, you know, when will be your coming uh, in, in sort of glory and greatness as judge? Well, Jesus answers their questions with what he called signs of the time, that is of the close of the age. And we also see that he called them birth pains, you know, sort of labor pains of the world and of this time. There are some people who have suggested that the events of Matthew 24 are truly limited, exclusively limited to things that happen before and, and at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, so-called you know, preterism. Uh, so they, they say, well, between the time that Jesus said this and the time that Jerusalem was destroyed, that's about 40 years. And all of the things going on that we're seeing here, they happened in that time and they're limited to that time. Uh, in other words, all of this teaching in these chapters is really limited to that stretch of about four decades. And, and the reasoning is it's not really applicable to today. In, in their eyes, we can't take lessons out of this for now because all of it was filled and finished in that time. And we respectfully disagree that this, that this is looking forward to a greater judgment. And it rings the same tone of judgment and of the end, uh, but that it's, 
but that that is going to um, that's going to be the lesser uh, demonstration of the greater judgment and the greater tumult of the time preceding the second coming on a much broader scale. So the disciples asked about the end of the age, which is a reference to Christ's second coming, and is not limited to prior events like the destruction of the temple exclusively. We don't. It's very hard logically to understand how their question about the end of the age is fulfilled in that small stretch of time. So that's, that's not uh, something that we can really affirm. Another major problem with this way of thinking is that Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world, which is not easily construed as having been finished and having taken place in those four decades, that is, leading up to 70 AD. And in verses 29 through 31, we haven't gotten there yet in chapter 24, Jesus is going to speak about this physical, visible advent, that is, his return, which again cannot be understood to have happened before 70 AD or or exclusively tied to the destruction of the temple. And for these reasons, major reasons, but several others, um, we, we really believe that, that these warnings are properly applied to the time between Jesus' first and second coming, which is n- unclear the day and the hour, but is a rather large stretch of time that is already about 2,000 years and ongoing until Jesus comes again. And we see these verses as much more broadly applicable in some ways to this entire season, this entire time, the last days between his time on earth first and his second coming. So while there are strong uh, teachings about that time, we see the you know, sort of echoes of that going out into history. Well, now we have important things to think about when it comes to Jesus teaching about the last days. That is, we define as the time between his first and second coming. It's been my observation and my concern as a pastor that the teachings of many churches and many pastors regarding the last days and regarding eschatology, which is the study of of the last things or of, you know, sort of the end times, um, has really that their teaching has become a snare and has become a disaster for them. I find that that the teaching is often bloated and overinflated to take up such a large portion of the church's focus and of the church's time and attention that their members are more engaged with the mysteries that only God knows um, while they're ill-equipped in even the basics of the faith. And I find this to be a deep imbalance that that I spend all my time in sort of mysteries that are really beyond what my mind can even comprehend or handle. And it has caused me to neglect other very basic principles of the Christian life. Um, I think this is a great imbalance. It leaves us ill-equipped. The churches are preaching and teaching on these matters to the neglect of so many other needful things that it creates a poor diet for the flock, and it leaves the flock ill-equipped uh, and sort of focused in in the wrong area 
uh, or at least imbalanced. I find that churches are doing their members a disservice because end times teaching is also full of fear. Very, it's very full of anxiety and full of fear and, and even doubt rather than comfort and hope. Churches are teaching their people to fill their basements with food and sort of necessary survival equipment. And, uh, you know, they, they're, they're teaching like doomsday prepper Christianity um, rather than teaching them the comfort and trust that God's return, despite all the tumult of the world, is the day of our great vindication and joy and comfort and the day that we see the Savior who loves us in the position of all authority over all things. So it's very distressing to me to see Christianity associated with anxious uh, camping supplies, you know, and uh, stockpiling of necessities and ammo and water. And it doesn't, it really doesn't make sense to me um, the kind of things that are associated with Christians and, you know, how they think about, you know, the end. Uh, and I find it to be harmful, harmful to our witness and harmful to the people that we should, we should live in anxiety about the coming of Jesus, the Savior who laid down his life for us. So that's another area of concern of mine. When we're facing mysterious and maybe difficult things, that we don't plunge into doubt and fear. I find that end times teaching in many churches does harm to new believers because they saddle them with mysteries and they saddle them with teachings for the mature when they're not really yet capable of discerning their value. I find this to be a rather difficult thing as well. I mean, how many... How many of us are, are sort of, you know, saying goodbye to our five-year-old as they go off to, like, factory work or as they go off to, you know, to do some uh, incredible technical job somewhere? They're saddled down with adult responsibilities, you know, with their hard hat and their lunchbox. You know, I'm off to the mines. Or, uh, again, we're, we're receiving disciples in Christian churches and then by handing them uh, some of the heaviest Christian mysteries in a, in a kind of an irresponsible way. We're not being sensitive to the needs of the lambs of God when we dump a lot of things on them before we've trained them to understand the Bible as a whole and before we've given them the skills uh, and before they've been tested in a way that that handing them these mysteries to them is, is a joy and fills them with hope and fills them with wonder and awe at the power of God over all ages. So again, I find the result is a great burden and a great weight on new believers that we sort of, in a manner of speaking, we barf on them difficult things beyond their understanding in a way that that sort of says, like, we can't tell a child from an adult. And I don't think it's wise. I don't think it's appropriate. I find that end times teachings are also soured in a great way, soured by pride and the desire to know more than God has revealed. Teachers are claiming to have the hidden key to mysteries and knowledge that will help us unlock secrets that nobody else knows. 
You know, and if you get on my program, you know, whatever guru, teacher, whatever sort of Christian celebrity, get on my program and you'll be ahead of everyone else. Like, I'll give you the inside track. Uh, and in that way, the church is enamored on leaders who style themselves as sort of special geniuses with special revelation, new revelation from God that no one else knows. And in that way, the church uh, suffers. They figured out the special code that they can now offer their, you know, their followers a front row uh, you know, seat that skips the line to heaven or something or that gets around the, the tumult of this time, like, you know, the fast pass to some ride at Disney World or Six Flags. You know, you're in the platinum, you know, members line. Uh, and and it's, it, there's, there's pride in the church. I know something you don't know. Way beyond, I know the Lord and his spirit lives in my heart. There's a difference between believer and unbeliever. But now it's among believers, I know something you don't know. I, you know, I've got this inside knowledge and there's, there's a feather in my cap related to end times things. And everyone else is a toddler that I pat on the head because they don't have the special knowledge that I have. Uh, again, this is, there's a lot of pitfalls related to end times teaching, related to eschatology. And we want to avoid such pitfalls in our teaching so that the teachings of Jesus on these matters become to us, instead of a weight dragging us down, they become to us a great benefit. Even with the distress that's in them, there's, there's a foundational comfort and there's a peace that passes understanding. And there's steadying, uh, there's steadying trust in the Lord for those who put their faith in him no matter what happens in the world. So when we look at chapter 24 and chapter 25 in Matthew, we can see the warnings that help us remain steadfast, that help us remain faithful, that help us to remain determined to follow our Savior no matter what happens, to endure with Him, and even endure in joy because we're not caught ill-equipped, we're not caught immature when we need to be mature. We can see teachings that cause us to put our hope in God and to live in awe at the thought of his return and his power. We can see the urgency that helps, uh, um, helps us focus and guard our hearts from sin and from the love of the things of this world that are passing away. And his teachings, properly understood and properly believed, will not produce panic his teachings will not produce desperate fear, sort of ungodly fear. His teachings will not produce self-reliance like, okay, you know, end times are coming. You know, like I said, I've gathered my supplies and my ammo and my guns. And, you know, now I'm, I'm fit for the end times. Is that, is that really the, is that the picture of the faithful one in light of these teachings? And the answer would be not, not really, uh, not exactly. It's, it's a matter of our faith. These teachings among God's people would produce good and Christ-like fruit, which is rather a different matter altogether. In verse 4, we can see that the world will experience uh, significant tumult in these last days. 
Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Tumult in the world is sort of one of the first major signs that we are living in the last days. And one significant of this, this expression of tumult would be false teachers leading many astray, many going after them. Even people who claim to themselves to be the Christ, and we should not follow them or allow ourselves to be led astray, but know Jesus and know his word and stand firm in him. It would be our duty to resist such claims and to discern the false claims of these persons. And to do that, we need to be intimate with Jesus and know him. We need to live with him and walk with him and understand what he wants from us, what he has promised, and remain steadfast. We would never be led astray by false claims of those who talk about being like Jesus or claim to be him when we're well-rooted in him, in his word. Then, then a counterfeit to us is a joke. And, the, you know, they're sort of like, you know, crudely done makeup and, you know, to, to, to appear as if they were the Christ to us is a comedy because we know Jesus too well. We've meditated on him and on his word. Another significant expression of tumult is the world at war and, you know, the rumors of war and conflict. We should not be surprised by conflict and wars in the time leading up to Jesus' return in a world that's full of sin and full of hatred, full of violence. A world in conflict, uh, that's no surprise to those who are forewarned and forearmed by Jesus' teaching. We wouldn't see this as something that causes us to go astray, something that causes us to despair, something that causes us to doubt that our salvation can happen, we would be forewarned. This definitely will happen. And while it is distressing, it is the will of God for this time. We will neither be surprised by famine or earthquakes or other disasters in the world, formula shortages, not a sign that God has abandoned us, not a sign that he's forgotten us, not a sign that he's against us. Not a sign that God would ever leave us as orphaned. These are, these are not signs that would have a Christian saying, well, God must not be in control. Look at earthquake. Look at famine. Look at trouble, strife, difficulty. These are what Jesus described like waves of contractions in a world giving birth. Uh, you know, as it were, from, from one era to another. Uh, contractions leading up to a significant life change. I love all the new babies in this church. When they arrived, you know, life was different. And so the world, the world is in a time of, of transition. And a significant change is coming. When the Messiah, almost ready to arrive, will arrive. And like the imminent birth of a baby, these are the pains of labor, of his revealing, of his return. 
when disaster strikes, the Christian would rather remain faithful. The Christian would rather show compassion. When hardship comes, we continue to show generosity. When difficulty comes, kindness and sympathy. Catastrophes, demonstrating you know, to, to everyone that we can our faith, our hope, our love. They are, they are in God and with him. And they are available to the world. The presence of these in the world, right, these sufferings, is no surprise to the Christian. We are ready to demonstrate our faith through suffering. Difficult though it may be, we will testify to God's truth through such trials as these. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus himself taught that he had not come, that is the first time, he had not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. And these days will be characterized for us By conflict. And not just big conflict like, oh, massive wars between nations far away. But also conflict down to our homes between father and son and mother and daughter and, and, you know, among brothers and sisters and so on. Not peace, but rather a sword, says Jesus. These days will be characterized by trouble and conflict. And he's teaching us to carry a cross through trouble. Like many other places in the Gospels and in the Bible in general, we see that this time will be characterized also by tribulation. That is, uh, with kind of a focused definition. Sufferings, troubles, distress, disruptions that come upon believers for their faith. That is, that come upon believers for staying faithful to Jesus and willingly following him, right? So tribulation, we're not just talking about trouble that everyone goes through. Now we're talking about troubles that come on believers who refuse to turn away from Jesus, even in difficult times and even under persecution. One such other place that speaks about this, right, is 2 Thessalonians 1. It says in verses 6 through 8, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. This is the time that we are afflicted. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Think about that thought. That's Paul, as he writes, writing about his persecutions and sufferings that have come upon him and that have come upon the church to whom he's writing and speaking about the way that recompense will come with Jesus' return. So the time of those afflictions, as Paul sees it, is the time leading up to his return, and he's taking part in those sufferings as well. And when Jesus is revealed from heaven, God will repay, it says in 2 Thessalonians 1. He will repay with affliction what we have suffered in affliction. And that's the message that, um, that comes across constantly. No serious Christian, no mature Christian, no honest Christian should shun the cross and the sufferings that come with following Jesus, the Master. Even our death cannot break our hope when we believe in the resurrected Savior. And so we're ready. We're ready to share in his sufferings. We know we have his life. We know we have his victory. Jesus teaches that we will suffer to be his followers. We'll be hated 
by all nations for his name's sake. We may be killed for his name's sake. We shouldn't be surprised if our church does not grow in the tumult of the world. Many false teachers draw people away. And it says as well in this second, uh, you know, this second sign of the times that the tumult and the, the troublesome, difficult uh, and heavy persecution will cause many to fall away and you know, to betray each other uh, and to, uh, to go astray and to you know, fall away from the church. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be surprised that under the pressure of a world that hates Christ, that there will be those who say, I, I, I can't take it, I don't want it. I don't, want to be un- I don't want to be under this kind of pressure. And so again, our faith, while grieved, is not lost, is not rocked, is not undermined by the falling away of many or the deaths of believers in persecution or the sufferings that we suffer. We are forearmed by Jesus who reveals these things. Should you be surprised by sufferings? No. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that many go, will go after false teaching and love to hear that worldly sexuality is okay. Worldly living, you know, is Christian. In fact, you know, the way things are going in our culture right now, the culture is browbeating Christians and saying, if you were better Christians, you would embrace these things. Look, you know, look at all the churches that embrace the things that we want. You should do it too. And frankly, you're a bigoted, bad, you know, Uh, a Christian if you don't bow down to what we want. You know, if the church, if the church doesn't, you know, embrace the slaughter of abortion or whatever else is popular at the moment, the pressure is high and many have caved and many have fallen away. The religion of the LGBTQ, which is in its, in a manner of speaking, its own cult and for that matter, is arguably our national religion. If you really think about it, the national religion of LGBTQ of affirmation, uh, if we don't, you know, if you don't bow down to that, the pressure is on, right? The pressure is on us. We should not be surprised by lawlessness in our land. Lawlessness like we've ever seen is happening now. In my lifetime, I've never seen the kind of lawlessness that we're seeing now. Should I dump my faith? Is God not in control? Is this something that, that uh, signals, instead of the, the nearness of Jesus' return, does this signal that I should dump my faith? It's getting me nowhere? Well, no. According to Jesus, we wouldn't be surprised. The wicked commit crimes right on the open. Nothing is done about it. We shouldn't be alarmed by the lovelessness of many, their love grown cold. None of these are a surprise. Rather, we must encourage one another and preach and teach Christian endurance, Christian uh, suffering leading to victory, Christian steadfastness. Those who endure in the faith clinging to Jesus will be saved. Don't give up. There is no future for worldliness, however it looks right at the moment. No future for lawlessness, however it looks at the moment. Whatever advantage it seems to be, no advantage when God comes to do justice. 
There's no future for sexual immorality. There's no future for lovelessness. There's no future for hatred and betrayal. But there is salvation for the humble who put their trust in Jesus. Finally, we see, we see the purpose of Jesus is full of hope. Even in these difficult days, as he intends that this time between his first and second coming, the, the end of the age, uh, the last days, the, the sign is also marked by the gospel going out everywhere. And we are urgently interested in seeing the gospel reach every corner of the earth according to the Great Commission. We are not interested in the way that some are utilitarian as Christians. Sort of, if we make it happen, God will be forced to come again. There's a certain stripe of this also. Like we've, we've got to reach the nations to sort of force God's hand. And that's not really what we're after here. We are, we are genuinely interested by a heart of compassion for God's purpose to be filled in the spread of the gospel, for their salvation and for their good and for the witness of the gospel in every place, um, which is a distinction there. We're not, we are zealous in missions, but this is God's work that we're doing and not something that we can manipulate God with. You know, if we can just do enough, it will force his hand is not really the attitude we have or should have. But what a joyful purpose it is. God's rescue is at work to save many who are far off and sheep that are not yet gathered into his fold. It's a joyful purpose, not a fear-driven purpose. We're excited to see the harvest of God and not living in fear of persecution and not living in constant uh, uh, anxiety over wars and earthquakes and rumors of wars. We're interested in sending the proclaimers of the gospel everywhere and it's an ongoing priority to train and to send and support gospel ministry and gospel mission work in all places. Training and sending missionaries and praying for them and financially supporting them and believing that the work is vital. And it is. It's a mark of this age that we can't afford to leave you know, to others somewhere, but we should be involved in as well. Believers then must be bold to follow Jesus and to hear this teaching demands boldness. It demands courage, which is what God provides to those who ask. It's not a time to shrink back this time in which we live. It's a time to take up our cross and follow. Not a time to be afraid, not a time to be cynical, not a time to be discouraged. It's a time to shine the light of Christ. Let your unshakable faith in the face of real trouble, not pretend, but real trouble, your unshakable faith, be the testimony that the world sees. Let your willingness to suffer and, and to endure hardship be an undeniable witness to a worldly generation and a generation in tumult. Let your unwavering commitment to the preaching of the cross Point to the direction of God's kingdom. What a time to live that we live in. What a time to be alive. What a time to serve the Lord. What a time to live for Jesus. So close 
to the end. So close, so close to his coming. What a time to be a Christian and to trust in the Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, hear our prayer for boldness and for courage and for strong faith in a time where many are falling away and in a time where many are in terror and in tumult and have their lives turned upside down. We pray that the church could show the compassion and the love of Jesus, faithfulness to him, honor to him, and such steadfastness that the witness of the gospel would advance. And while it seems impossible, according to every metric of this world, we don't have the power, we don't have the influence, we don't have the money, we don't have, we don't have uh, so much of uh, what is necessary to be counted as powerful, we have the power of your spirit which makes the greatest strength of men look like foolishness and weakness. So hear our prayer, Lord, in the power of your spirit, in the name of Jesus, uh, for the advance of the gospel and for a solid foundation, even through great hardship. We pray all these things with our eyes on Jesus in his crucifixion. Hear us in his name. Amen. Let's sing in response number 386. 386.